Good morning, everybody. I am Pastor Dylan, as I said. I'm one of the pastors here. I am filling in for Pastor Paul, which uh, he is taking his recuperation, or at least he was supposed to be, but he's here this morning. Give it up for Pastor Paul. Thank you for joining us. Um, he's, he's appreciated the time away and thanks you for, you know, the time to recharge with him and his family and it's been a good time for them. Um, as we get into God's word this morning, would you pray with me that God would open our hearts to his word and, and make us available and teachable. Let's, uh, let's join together and let's pray before we dive in. Father, thank you, uh, for everything that you've done up to this point in the service, God. I pray that you would make our hearts open, available, and God, when we hear your word this morning, I pray that we would be quick to obey it. I pray that you'd give us uh, ears to hear and a heart to obey, and, and we ask that your spirit would be present, Lord, and at work among us today by opening your word in a new way to us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm delighted to share with you this morning, over the uh, course of the past couple of months, Uh, Really, since the beginning of the year, we've been going through a series on the prophets, which, according to Crossway Publishing, which is the people who publish the Bibles that are right in front of you, um, is the least read and the least understood portion of the scriptures. If I were to say, how many of you have read Habakkuk in the last three weeks? Go ahead, throw your hand up there. Yeah, I got you. Look, bravo, Pat, bravo. Okay, but it's, it's usually the most neglected portion of Scripture, so we like to spend time to try to teach what people often neglect because it's hard to understand. Over the last couple of weeks, for the summer, we've focused on some important topics that we think as pastors are important for you to hear, are important for you to learn, and we've focused on those things. But today, what I would like to do for a moment is to turn our attention back to the prophets. In particular, the most quoted prophet in the New Testament, the prophet Isaiah. Now, Isaiah was a prophet in the 7th century BC, about 700 years before Jesus. Uh, He's often called the Shakespeare of the Hebrew language, and he was a priest and a poet in the nation of Israel. Uh, Today, I think what we're going to study is we see that Isaiah gives us some steps. And as a way of recap, if you guys remember what Pastor Paul taught us, he taught us what's that Hebrew word to turn? You come to a point and you shuv. Somebody got it. All right, get that person a piece of candy. You shuv, you turn, okay? You, you come to this point where you're heading away from God, and you come to a point where you say, I, I can't head in this direction any longer. I need to face God. I need to, I need to turn to God. But from there, what I want to talk to us about today is some steps Isaiah gives us. I find a lot of Christians who, who get stuck in baby Christian zone. And, you know, they want to stay here and they want to be fed and they use things like, well, the worship didn't fit me at this church. And, and they really never take any steps to grow up. So today, I want to give us some steps in growing in our relationship with the Lord. What does it look like to take steps like a child with a father that says, you know what, I'm not going to remain this way forever. It's okay that I am this way. It's okay that a child is a child, but certainly at some point, children grow up. So wherever you happen to be on your journey of faith this morning, I think Isaiah gives us some good pointers, some good steps we can take with the father to, to follow that path of maturity that he has for us. And whether you're very serious about your faith, or maybe you're exploring this and searching this out for the first time, I think we can all find some relevance here. Because for all of us, there is a gap between the reality of who we are and the ideal of who we would like to be, right? Can anybody say amen to that? There is is a chasm between who I am and who I would like to be. And I would like to close that gap. I would like to see myself accomplish that. I would like to see myself change and be the person I know I am capable of being. And I think some well-meaning people along the way 
have said some things that are not true. Like, well, that's just the way you are. Accept it. Well, that's just who you're going to be. Just, just learn to cope with it. Just deal with it. And I think if we're not careful, we can embrace the unbiblical idea that we can never change and we're always going to be the same person that we have always been. And that there's no hope for us. That's the opposite of Christianity. That is antithetical to the teachings of Jesus. So in order to see what the scriptures say about this subject, we're going to be looking at the words of the prophet Isaiah this morning in the book of Isaiah chapter 6. That's page uh, 635 in, the, in the, uh, the Bibles in front of you. You can follow along on a Bible app. It's page 635, Isaiah chapter 6. And this is a very personal passage for me. When I first became a believer, um, I would, uh, I'd listen to a radio preacher. I'd go to class, and then I worked at a veterinary hospital. And then on my way home from work, it just happened to be for the half-hour drive it took me to get home, there was a radio preacher on. And he would often preach on Isaiah chapter 6. He would reflect on this often. When he was teaching about things, he would, he would, he would reflect back to it. So as an early follower of Jesus, this passage of Scripture is seared into my mind. It, it communicated to me how God, who God is and how he communicates to us. It, it shaped me in my early walk with Jesus. And I believe it can do the same for you because as a young believer, I, there was a big chasm between where I wanted to be and who I was. But through this, I, I felt the promise of the prophet Jeremiah. I, I felt that God had a future and a plan and a purpose for me. And it was, it was for my welfare and my good and not for my harm. And God used this passage to show me both the holiness and the love of God and show me that they're not at odds with one another, but they're two pedals that keep a bike moving forward. They're the steps that God brings me close to himself with. So as we read this this morning, I want you to keep that in mind. There's hope for you. Let's read Isaiah chapter 6, starting in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, or the angels. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am. Send me. May God bless his word and give us ears to hear it. In Jesus' name. This is Isaiah's personal account. This, this is Isaiah telling us his story of how he personally encountered God. And this is simply a side note at the very outset, but I think your story as Christians or maybe as people who are just beginning a walk of faith is valuable for other people to hear because people can be transformed by hearing about the way God has transformed you. Don't be afraid to share that. Be proud of that. Share how God has changed you. It's an important thing for you to talk about. But what we see here is more than just a personal story. 
It's, it's a vision Isaiah gets of heaven. And he gets a peek behind the veil of what heaven is like and what God is like. This is actually, this scene is often repeated, oftentimes throughout the Bible in different scenarios. Ezekiel, a couple of hundred years later, hundreds of miles away on the bank of the Chabar River, he, he looks up and he sees God with all these angels surrounding him, and he sees this same scene. And, and John the Apostle on the island of Patmos, uh, he's in exile, and an angel comes and takes him to the throne room of heaven, and he sees the lamb seated upon the throne with elders and angels surrounding him saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. This, this is a vision we often see in scripture of what God is like and what heaven is like. And Isaiah, from the start of his story here, is moving from just knowing about God to hearing about God, to knowing facts about God, to really encountering God for himself. Remember that Isaiah was a priest. He'd probably been to hundreds or maybe even thousands of temple services and church services. He's a lot like you. He's maybe been in a lot of these. He thought he knew things about God. He had heard things about God. He may even have known correct things about God. But at this point, he sees God for himself. He encounters God, and he discovers that God is is awe-inspiring and fear-inducing and over-the-top gracious and, and beyond what he ever imagined. It took his breath away, even though he knew all the correct things about God. One of my favorite pastors often says, you are more wicked than you ever dared feared, and you are far more loved than you ever dared hope. And this is what Isaiah sees, both the holiness and the grace of God, hand in hand, on display, and I think sometimes that, that message can be lost when people tell me their stories of encountering God for themselves. Remember that scripture says that God is the same yesterday, today, and, and forever. And, I, and sometimes when I hear people talk, there's an inconsistency because God is always consistent in the way he reveals himself. He loves you. He uniquely reveals himself to you. Yes, but he is holy and he doesn't change to fit our preferences. When I first started working here, it was maybe less than a year into this. Pastor Paul, you were preaching one Sunday. I am so sorry. I have no idea what it's about. I totally forgot. But I was at the altar after service praying for somebody. And uh, this, 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 this uh, couple came up to me, a middle-aged couple. And they asked me to pray for them. I was like, okay, what can I, what can I pray with you about? They were like, well, we want God to bless our marriage. I was like, okay. I'm like, yeah, we, uh, we feel that God has told us to, uh, we've been so attracted to each other, so we, feel that God has told us to leave our former spouses to be together. And I don't say this to shame them. I, I, I can't make this stuff up. By the way, this is why the scripture tells you to honor those who labor in preaching and teaching among you because uh, people, people come to us with certain things and we ought to have the wisdom to respond both with truth and with love because both are important. So pray for your pastors and your elders. But as I'm sitting there in front of them, I do the best that I can to tell them that God doesn't lead people to do this. That he goes so far as in the book of Malachi to say, I've stopped answering your prayers because you've been unfaithful to the wife of your youth. Now, this couple had done this years and years before. Their, their former spouses were remarried. My advice to them and my advice to you if you're in a similar circumstance is not that you go back and you remarry the first person, you undo it. Listen, there is redemption moving forward, but... The reason I, I bring this up, the reason that this hit me while preparing this message is because I think so often we expect God to fit to us and do and just 
and, and, and be like a genie in the bottle that just accomplishes whatever makes us happy. We think God will bless it if it makes me happy. If it's what, and I can put God's name tag on it and say God led me to do it and that's fine. And we say things like, this is what God told me, or God led me to do it, or I feel that God led me in this direction. And we fashion God in our own image instead of allowing God to speak for himself. And instead of seeing God, we're just seeing the own image that we've created. Because we think that if God loves us, that means he's never going to challenge us or change us. That's a way that a mind that is fixed on the flesh thinks. That's a mind that leads to death. That is a mind that is fixed on the way that this world does things. And it's the first thing that Isaiah addresses here in chapter 6 as a barrier to real relationship with God, real covenant with God. A mind that thinks that way. Because the way that we see God and the way that we think about God will determine the rest of our lives. Listen to these, listen to these couple of verses Isaiah says. I saw the Lord seating, sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. The angels called to one another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, verses 1 and 3. Holy is a term that I don't think we're very familiar with in American culture, or really I just think generally as human beings. If I were to ask the average person, what do you think holy means? They'd say something along the lines of, well, it's pure or, or morally upright. And yes, it certainly is that. But it, it is more than that. When, when Isaiah sees the angels crying out holy, what they're saying is that God is altogether different. He is, he's above and beyond what can be expressed in human language. It's like a picture. I can sit here and preach to you all morning about a picture, or I could just show you. And then it goes from just being descriptive noises in your ears to being emblazoned in your mind. You can see it. Holiness is like that. It must be experienced. That's the difference between knowing about God and knowing God. Because God refuses to only be engaged with the mind. He will not sit under your microscope for you to examine. But he never asks you to check your mind at the door either. Isaiah actually is using a Hebrew literary device here to, to interpret what he's hearing and saying. For example, uh, Kev, come on up here real quick. Stand right here. So this morning we were in pre-service prayer and we were like, Kev, you look like one of those guys who's like, you know, who's like rowing in, in the city of Venice. You know, what, are the, what Steve, what did you call it? Yeah, okay, gondolier. So this morning, if I were to look at Kevin for you right now and I said, Kevin is like a gondolier. What, what English literary device did I just use? A simile, like or as, right? Kevin is like a gondolier. You just put a little flat-brimmed cap on him and there you go. Bendito, there he is. So, thank you, Kevin. Everybody give it up. Bendito. Bendito. Whatever, man. <laughs> so, that, that's an English literary device, right? If I compare something, I use like or as. That's an English way for me to, for me to express something. A, the Hebrew literary device used here by Isaiah is this triple repetition. Because at the end of the day, though God is amazing and inexpressible, he always comes down to our level and he graciously makes himself known to us in a way that we can understand. He's communicating to you in ways you can un you understand. For example, you, my favorite place to go to the beach is, is Newburyport. If you like Cape Cod, you're wrong. Newburyport's just better. So I go to Newburyport. And I look out over the bay, and the ocean's huge. I can't see the end of it, okay? But I can scoop a cup down 
And if I try to take a drink of that water, what am I going to discover? The ocean is salty. Now, I can't see the whole ocean. I can't, I can't fathom it in comparison to me. The ocean would swallow me whole over and over again. But I can tell you that the ocean is salty. God is like that. You can't encompass him. He's inexpressible. He's holy. But he communicates to you something about him. He says, you might not be able to see me, but know that all of me is loving. God expresses himself in ways that we can understand. So Isaiah uses the triple repetition of the word holy, which was the Israelites' way of saying that this is the ultimate, absolute expression of this, no matter what anybody says. This is the ultimate. To repeat it three times is to say that. That is a Hebrew literary device that's at work here. For example, if the angels were looking at me, they'd say like, skinny, skinny, skinny is Dylan the scrawny, all right? It's, it's beyond refutation. It is a fact. I am a wet noodle, okay? It's just a way for the Hebrews to express an absolute fact. So what Isaiah is seeing here, what he's saying is these angels are so overwhelmed by God, they're like covering their face. They can't even look at him. They're like, you are incredibly pure. You are incredibly good. And you are beyond expression. That's what the angels are saying. They can't stop saying it. He's like, the only way I can describe it to you is like this. And he uses something that the Hebrews can understand. Like, I can't even look at it. It's so good. It's, it's so pure and good and inexpressible. It, it goes beyond what can be said. And this is pivotal if you really want to know God. This is the dividing line, whether you're going to come to church and, and, and participate in dead religious activity or whether you're going to really know God for yourself. This is the difference between knowing facts about God and knowing God. This is a Rubicon of faith, so to speak, a river that you have to cross, and it's the first step into hope. And it's very simply, and listen very closely to this, you must see God for who he really is, not who you want him to be. Let me repeat that. You must see God for who he really is, not who you want him to be. Because God wants you to know him for who he actually is, and sometimes that's going to frighten you, it's going to rub you the wrong way, it's going to challenge you, it's going to fly in the face of what you've been thinking maybe your entire life. It's going to bring you to confront all the filth and the dysfunction inside that you've covered up with polished presentation just like that middle-aged couple. I bring them up not to shame them. I bring them up to say, we are all like that. Coming before God and saying, well, really, this is okay. Really, God, if you look at it from my perspective, my sin is really justifiable. You can live with this. Really knowing God, it's kind of like a marriage. Like, when you marry someone, there's a gap between who you've made your spouse out to be and who they actually are. Don't laugh. Your spouse is next to you, okay? You might have only focused on the parts of your spouse that have selfishly brought you satisfaction instead of loving your spouse for who they actually are. There's a difference. What, what you focused on, you, you might have treated marriage like a buffet that you can just have whatever you want and the stuff you don't want, well, you can leave it there and somebody will throw it out at the end of the day. And your wife yells at you because you leave it on the kitchen table. Knowing God is not like that, okay? We do the same thing with God all the time. And it's a barrier between us and real interaction with God. And that's why it's, I think, incredibly important 
for you to be studying this word, to be in the scriptures, because, because your feelings and your impressions and your inner voices can deceive you. Jeremiah says that the heart is desperately wicked and sick above all things. Who can know it? But God will speak to you through his word. And it might not always be what you're comfortable with. It may not be what you wanted to hear. But that is a good thing. Timothy Keller, he's one of my favorite authors and and preachers in the city of Manhattan. He says, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. And that's the first step I think Isaiah gives us here is that we must see God for who he really is, not who we want him to be. Because if you dismiss any disagreement between God and yourself as unimportant, God can't make progress in your life. You might have turned, you might have said that nice prayer, you might have said, I am a Christian, praise the Lord. It doesn't matter at all if you cannot take this first step in growing in faith. Because acknowledging and seeking to correct that is called repentance. That's a first step into real covenant, real relationship with God. And Isaiah almost immediately finds God to be disagreeable and yet loving. Listen to verses 4 to 7. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the angels flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from, with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. All throughout the scriptures, when people see God, they're both terrified and hopeful. They're both completely awestruck and yet put at peace at the same time. You always see both things. Habakkuk the prophet, he, in his whole, his, the whole book of Habakkuk is one long laundry list of complaints. It's literally just Habakkuk complaining to God the whole time. Some of you can relate to this, okay? Habakkuk's going to be your new favorite book. But Habakkuk's complaining to God. And then God finally answers him and speaks to him and shows up. And listen to what Habakkuk says when he finally really encounters God. He says, my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Habakkuk 3, 16 and 18. When Samson's father in the book of Judges, chapter 13, encounters God, he says, I'm going to die because I've seen the face of God. And his wife says, no, no, listen. God has heard our prayers. He's accepted our offerings. He's going to listen to us. Who says ladies aren't the reasonable ones, right? Lady, give yourself a little pat on the back. And probably most relatable to us, Peter, the lead apostle in the New Testament. Uh, Jesus comes into his life and blesses his, his area of career. He takes him out on the boat and he catches all of this fish. He's basically pouring money into Peter's lap. And Peter, after, after Jesus has blessed him, Peter looks at him and says, Depart from me, Lord. I am a wicked man. And Jesus says, no, from now on you will be with me catching men in Luke chapter 5. Because when you really encounter God, when you really discover who he is, two things happen. Number one, you see your sin. And number two, you see God's hope for you. Because those, those two things always come together. They are never separated. If you ever listen to a preacher and he gives you one of those things without the other, he is lying to you. 
Because God will never ignore your sin. He will never excuse it. He died his son to take it away from you, to cleanse it. But a preacher will never leave you without hope who is true to the word of God. They will never show you, that. they will always show you there's a way of escape. There's a way you can be different. There is a hope and a future for you beyond this. And many people run from this because it's, it's less painful for us to put on a front than it is to really be honest about what's going on inside. Because God loves us just as we are, but far too much to permit us to remain as we are. And I think that frightens us. About two years ago, I was flown to Florida by a larger church in the Chicago area. They paid all, you know, the expenses and flew me down for a leadership training. They're a huge church of about, you know, 20,000 people or so. And uh, they, they're internationally recognized for doing leadership trainings all over the world. And so they wanted to invest in me, and I, it, was, it was a rare and privileged opportunity. So I was flown down to Clearwater Beach, Florida, a.k.a. heaven. It was amazing. The water was literally clear. It was awesome. You guys should go. But um, so I'm, I'm at Clearwater Beach, and I got to sit in a Q&A session uh, with myself, about 20 other pastors, and the lead pastor of, of this church. I mean, it was a rare opportunity to have access in such an informal environment to somebody who's led such a successful movement. And so I'm sitting with this pastor, and have you ever sat with somebody, and, and, and it's like, they have, like they're speaking your thoughts back to you? Like they have such clarity and wisdom and knowledge that it's like they're almost, they're almost answering your questions before you even have them, like as they come out of your mouth. And it's more than just charisma. It's like they understand the way you think. You ever experienced somebody like that? But it was like that. I was sitting in the room, and, he, and, and, and you know, he's just answering all these questions, and he's spot on, and, you know, it's, it was just it was an amazing time. And, uh, you know, really incredible. It was great to meet him. Got to sit in with that. Flew back here. You know, we were planning on, you know, bringing one of his leadership trainings here to you, to this church. I mean, we were excited about it. I was excited about it. I was, I was pioneering this and pushing it for, for everything here. And about three weeks later, in a... in a nationally known paper, an investigative article was published, and last I checked, it was about, I think, 12 to to 14 women had accused this man of of sexual misconduct. And since then, an independent investigation has proven that to be credible, true, and legitimate, that he did these things. He has since stepped down, and things have fallen out there. And we canceled this leadership summit. Uh, We were most of all, I was, I think, the most torn up about this. You know, I was excited about this. And, and I couldn't understand how somebody who was so wise, who seemed to have all the answers, yet simultaneously could be so broken. It was like I was looking at the, in the face of a modern Solomon. You know what I mean? Like somebody who could tell everybody else what they needed to do, but still married a thousand women. It's like, dude, what's, why would you? Like, so, he just had all the answers for everybody else, but couldn't follow it for himself. And I really began to lose sleep over this. I mean, I, I was like, I couldn't, I couldn't process it. And I think the Lord showed me through this encounter that we can all be like that. That men and women like us can cover up and hide who we are so well that we almost fool ourselves. And we're like Adam and Eve stitching together every leaf we can find to mask what's really underneath. And I saw in that man what I see in myself and I see in so many other people and that's what bothered me. 
It's not that I'm tempted to do the same things he's tempted to do, but the temptation to hide my sin and to not deal with it is exactly the same. And all of us do it. And I think that's the difference between those who are hiding in religion and those who want to be really connected to God. They want to live in the light. John the Apostle uh, said it this way, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John chapter 1, 7-9. Listen to that. If we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another. There is a sense in which Isaiah and John and you and I need the fellowship or, or the friendship of other people in order to keep us in the light. And that's why you got, you got small group handouts this morning. I, I think it's so important for you to, to be with other people who are going to keep you in the light. And that's why we push these. That's why we talk about these. You cannot do this on your own. Christianity is not a solo sport. Remember that as Isaiah is confessing his sin, as he's doing this, he is in public, in the temple, saying out loud, I am a man of unclean lips. And that's why we encourage you to be a part of those things. To confess your sins to somebody. If you don't see a small group that fits your time or your schedule, you know what? Talk to me. Email me. We will figure something out and we will make that happen together because it is so important for us to help keep other people accountable and for people to keep us accountable, to keep us on this walk with Jesus. One verse that consistently reoccurs over the course of my life is James 5.16. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Because a lot of you have been confessing this way. You've been doing this for a long time. You've been admitting your sins in the vertical direction quite a bit. But the reason that these things keep coming back is because there is no plan for growth and no help along the way because your freedom and your deliverance and your new life sometimes is locked up horizontally. It's in the believers around you. And we say it here often because we believe it. Real freedom and change requires real relationship and honesty, both with God and with others. Now, I'm not going to open a Catholic confessional, not open a little booth in the back, all right? I am not your priest. You are a body of priests. You confess to one another and keep one another in the light. That's why we have small group leaders. That's why we have elders. That's why we have people that we raise up to do this. I am not your, your superstar, the pastors here are not your superstars. And don't misunderstand me here. People cannot free you from the grip of sin. They are not powerful enough. They are not able to do it. People are not your source. But the right people, though they are not the source of change, can be the guardrails that keep you on the right track. They are the people who pull you in the right direction. They keep you coming back to the light, staying with God. And they funnel you to the only one who can change you, God himself. Isaiah confesses his sin. He's in public. He did it both to God and publicly to other people. I'm not going to have you call your sins out here publicly this morning. Please don't do that. That would be weird. Get in a small group. This, I think, is the evidence of moving forward and growing in your faith. Not only do you turn and see God for who he really is, but, and not who you've made him out to be, but number two, you find real freedom when you see him. And I'm not talking about a perfect life. I'm not talking about a sinless life. I'm talking about an honest life. 
where you can walk in the light with your flaws and they no longer have control or power over you anymore. You're no longer a manipulative person. You don't trash talk people anymore. You're not dominated by your need to be applauded and noticed. You're not crippled by your need to be in a relationship all the time. Doesn't mean these things aren't temptations. Doesn't mean you don't think about them. But it means that the blood of Jesus has broken the power of sin over you. That it doesn't control you. This, that it does not determine the course of your life anymore. Because the controlling power of sin has been put to death at the cross. So I will never be the type of Christian who preaches or practices making peace with sin. Because a genuine relationship leads you out of sin. Dead religion just uses God to alleviate a guilty conscience. Listen to 1 John chapter 5.18 in the NLT. We know that God's children do not make a practice of sinning. For God's Son holds them securely, and the evil one cannot touch them. Because the Lord Jesus will keep you from sin. He'll pull you out of it. You can depend on it and take that to the bank. He can pull you out of the position you're in, and when you really see him, and you really know him, you will find real freedom. You don't have to make peace with where you're at. Karl Marx, the, uh, the founder of communism, once who's a vocal critic of Christianity, uh, once said, religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of the heartless world, the soul of the soulless condition. And as you famously have heard, it is the opium of the masses. Karl Marx viewed faith, what you and I have here, as a narcotic, as a way that we treat ourselves. And you know what? He is absolutely right if your faith is only used to soothe your conscience and nothing else. I find that many of us are willing to let God ease our troubled minds, but not willing to allow him to take away our sin. And I think this is where Isaiah brings all this talk about knowing God down to a personal level. Because those who personally know God find freedom from sin. It's not a sinless life. Remember earlier, the Apostle John said, those who say they have no sin are what? Liars. They're not telling the truth. But, but, it is a life that is progressing. A verse that I often cling to in moments of temptation for myself is Proverbs 4, 18. It says, the path of the righteous is like the dawn. It grows brighter and brighter until noonday. You ought to be progressing and not regressing. You ought to be pressing forward even though if it's a struggle. You ought to not be making peace or saying, I can never be different. Because you know what that is? That's condemnation. That's what happens to somebody who is given up on by God. But you are not that person. God does not give up on you and therefore you can overcome what seems impossible. So, so what are the steps of knowing God? What does it look like to be growing in God? Number one, you see God for who he really is, not who you want him to be, so that number two, you can find real freedom. And so that number three, you can make a difference in the lives of others. I'm going to invite the worship team back at this time. I, Isaiah encounters, his, his encounter with God ends with a new beginning. Let me say that again. Isaiah's encounter with God ends with a new beginning. Listen to verse 8. Read this with me. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? 
And then I said, here I am, send me. I think the closer we grow to God, the more natural this response will be coming out of us. I'm not here this morning to transform you into a bunch of Jehovah Witness nor door knockers or, or Mormon street missionaries. That's not my objective. But I do think that a person who has really encountered God can begin to progress and make a difference in the lives of others. About two weeks ago, I was, uh, I was invited to a Lowell Spinners game to uh, celebrate our, our very own Will Hatley. He was getting an award um, from the Veterans Administration for helping uh, struggling veterans get on their feet again. And we're proud of the light he's being in that circle of influence. And as I was there, um, this couple sat down beside me, and I was there begrudgingly, believe me. Um, baseball is like watching paint dry. I'm sorry, it's an abysmal sport. I, I just can't get into it. But I was there because I was showing support for Will. And this couple sits down behind me, and I hear him, you know, he starts talking about being in the Marines. So I was like, oh, yeah, Semper Fi. I turned around, I said, thank you, my, dad, my dad's a Marine. And, uh, you know, we get to talking. You know, it turns out he's a Christian, and him and his wife, they go to church in Lowell. Great people. His name was Shane. And uh, Shane had invited uh, two of his friends from work to the game, and they were sitting next to him. They were not believers. You know, so they, you know, I, we just start chatting and talking, and in the course of conversation, uh, uh, the man who is not a believer asked me the question, so what do you do for a living? This is me putting point two into practice right now, all right? Confession time. I am always tempted to lie when this question comes up. And the reason I'm tempted to lie is because people usually do one of three things. Number one, they shut down. Number two, they laugh and they're like, what are you, 12? Or number three, both. So I shamed the devil. I told the truth. I said, I'm a pastor. And he laughed. He's like, wow, I thought you were like 15. I was like, I gained three years. Look at that. And I had to suppress my snarky side from compromising this moment and saying, yeah, I'm going to look a lot better than you at 50, bro. But, but over the course of the conversation, he really opened up. And at this Lowell Spinners game, we kind of, you know, we just started talking. And I was able to use my perceived inadequacy and my perceived weakness and talk about the Apostle Paul's words in uh, Corinthians where he says, uh, on my, in my weakness, Christ's strength is on display. It's in my weakness that, that God's grace shows itself for what it is. And I was like, yeah, you're totally right, man. I don't know how I get along. I'm like, I don't know why anybody listens to me. I'm only 26, you know? Like, uh, but, but God uses the weak and the strange things of this life in order to accomplish his purposes and wills. And, and they, were, they, they were like, I've never heard anything like this before. And simultaneously, I was able to encourage these newer believers and talk to these people who had never met Jesus and share Christ with them. Say, this is who Jesus is. Jesus does stuff like this all the time. He takes things that are not, and he calls them out, and makes them things as they are. And I'm not sure what I said after that. I don't know if you were in that situation where just love and excitement and, and just starts pouring out of you. You don't know what you're saying anymore. You're just talking about God. At one point, the Christian lady, she goes, there's a halo around your head. I'm like, that's, that's just the lights from the baseball game. Relax. Like, But I delighted to share Jesus with those people. And I pray for, his name is Warren, if you think of him. You should pray for him. But when Isaiah sees what God has done for him, he can't help but to, to delight to offer himself to the mission. He says, here I am, Lord, send me, I'll go. I've seen what you've done for me, I'll go, I'll do it. 
I'm never going to ask you to go door-to-door evangelizing. I'm not going to do it because I believe that Jesus should flow out of you wherever you are, whoever you're with, whatever you're doing, that Jesus should be in you and that you ought to be a light wherever you are. So, and I think some of us have lost that, that joy, that delight. And we do things like talk about Jesus so we don't feel guilty anymore. He's not a delight for pulling us and rescuing us and, and, and redeeming us anymore. He's just something, you know, I feel like this is my obligation. Maybe you're, maybe you're a Christian and you're in that position. I believe God can change and meet you wherever you happen to be today. Because if you really take step one and you see God for who he really is and, and you take step two, you've been set free by him, uh, you'll run with delight into step three to make a difference for others. Because God wants to give your life eternal impact. He doesn't want to pull you out of where you are. He wants to redeem where you are. He wants you to be a light where you are. He doesn't want to take you out of the world. He wants you to be with him in the world. And I think one of the reasons Christian churches around America are not growing is is because we've, it's not because we've stopped doing religious missionary activity. We still do missions trips and we still do all of those things and those things are good and they're, they're good things we should do. But... I think we do religious missionary activity, but we are not captured by the Jesus we talk about and we don't know him half as well as we like to say we do. We're caught up loving our sin too much to lay it down for him. And we do all these religious activities without any love for the people we actually encounter and any love for the God we talk about. And is it any wonder nobody wants that? But I believe that the Father wherever you happen to be in this juncture of faith, this journey of faith, whatever step you happen to be on. And listen, it is not linear. It's not step one, two, three. Sometimes you feel like you're three steps forward and four steps back and you don't know where you are. But God can take that next step with you wherever you happen to be. Because I don't want to just have a forgiven conscience. I want to change life. And I don't want to craft God in my own image and just make him whatever's convenient. I want to really know God. I want him to speak to me. And I don't want to lose my joy 10 years from now and be sitting in a church with two and a half kids and a white picket fence and zero legacy. I believe that God can redeem all of those things for all of us. And perhaps you've come to the place in your life where you've been treating God like a buffet. You want God on your terms, but God won't have that. He is holy. And we cry out, we cover our face and we say, God, you're pure and you're beautiful and whatever you want to change about me, do it. That's the God we serve. And maybe you've been stuck in sin for so long. It's just the same thing. You're like, listen, I know, I know Jesus forgives me, but I can't seem to get free. When we're at these altars today after service, I want you to know these altars are Vegas, man. Listen, what you say here stays here. And you need to confess to somebody. You need to bring that burden you've been carrying for too long on your own and lay it down. And you will find that God is over the top gracious to you. That he delights to show mercy to you. That he has not been waiting in judgment, but he's been waiting like the the father of the prodigal son. He's like, finally, my child's return. God can do that for you, but you have to confess. Maybe lastly, you've been a Christian for a long time, but you you have lost joy. You, you, you've been doing this, you've, been, you, you've gone to church your whole life, but this does not have the eternal impact that you thought it would. Jesus wants to move you from just doing religious activities 
to delighting in him, to knowing him personally. He wants to speak to you and guide you and use you and redeem your life. I don't know where you're at. Maybe you need to take that next step into baptism next month. You need to say, Jesus, I'm all in. I'm all yours. September 29th, portable baptismal tank, baby. We'll christen that thing with you. Maybe you need to take that step. Say, I'm all in for you, Jesus. Maybe you need to confess and say, Jesus, I've been holding this too long. This belongs to you and to my brothers and sisters. It's too heavy for me to carry on my own. I need to walk in the light. Maybe you need that joy and significance and purpose again that your life's been lacking for a long time. God's a holy God. He's a gracious God, and he can give you all those things. And I believe he will if you'll take that step out. So I'm going to invite you to stand. And as we continue in worship, the elders, the pastors, if you're a credential holder in the assemblies, I'd ask you to just filter out up front. They'll be here to pray for you. You need somebody to confess to? Do it. You need, if you want to turn your life over to Jesus today and you want to say enough of my way, his way, do it. Somebody will be here to pray with you. And if you need joy again, I want you to come up here and sing out and worship. And find the delight of Jesus again. Let's worship the God who's holy.